Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for home theater geeks is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded July 18th, 2011, episode 73, Video Super Geeks. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code HTG7. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here with UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. This week's guest geeks are Greg Lowen and Michael Chen both of uh, Lion AV Consulting and THX certified uh, instructors who teach the uh, video calibration class for THX. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. Hey, there. Hey, Scott. Uh, For those of you who uh, might be a little... There you go. Uh, Greg is uh, actually in his car at a gas station (laughs) on his way with his family to a vacation in Canada, and he stopped off where they have a free Wi-Fi to join us on the podcast. So thank you so much for that, Greg. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, so I wanted to start by letting everybody know that, uh, of course, as I said before, you teach, both of you teach the THX video calibration certification course, and you both just got back from doing that course for the first time in China. So uh, how'd that go? Went right. really well. I mean, the, the the hardest thing was the was the translation. And uh, but you know, it's uh, it's fun when you have a class where everybody's an enthusiast and everyone wants to learn. And we kind of we got past that barrier. We had uh, we had an official translator. And we had like four or five guys in the class that could speak some uh, that could speak some English and did some extra translation. And it went really well. Michael, what was your experience? Oh, it was pretty much the same. Uh- um, I'm actually happy that I'm about 60% fluent in the language, so sometimes when the translation doesn't go right, I can actually step in and do my primitive English Mandarin translation and yeah. act it out with my hands. And <laughs> I guess that. Yeah, I guess, I guess maybe finger puppets might be good at, at one point or another, huh? <laughs> That's right. Um, so how many people did you have in the class? We had uh, we we did two level one classes. Uh, the first level one had twenty four people. The second level one had uh, eighteen. And then the level two class, which is an extra two days, had uh, I think at twelve. Now were these were these mostly uh, Michael? Were these mostly um, professional calibrators or people who wanted to be professional or just enthusiasts who just wanted to be able to do their own TVs and displays? In most cases, they were all pr- professionals of some sort. Uh, they were of uh, the uh, installers. Uh, we had people that were out already in the post-production, and they just wanted to come and learn more. We actually had a, a director of a film from Hong Kong come up to learn some more stuff. Huh, wow. And, and I, I guess I'm curious about whether or not 
calibration or, or uh, the video system standards are any different in China or elsewhere overseas uh, than they are here. For example, we know that uh, in Europe they use PAL instead of um, ATSC now in this country, um, which has a little bit different frame rate. I don't know if the color temperature and, and color points are any different or not, are they? Hey, Greg, you answer that. Okay. Um, they, it's, it, we're still using D65 and Rec. 709 on, on all the Blu-ray mastering worldwide, but uh, we did have uh, one uh, Japanese individual that was living in um, Taiwan. Was it Taiwan, Michael. Taiwan. That, that they're actually um, they're doing their television content at uh, at 9300, uh, very 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 blue, and and they wow. do a lot of other testing that's even more blue than that. So that was the only difference. So it was kind of neat to. Hear what his what, what this engineer's take was on on some of the work we were doing, just now for I, the differences. I think we should uh, just make sure that everybody understands that um, what we're talking about here in terms of color temperature is the color of white in in essence, um, and ninety three hundred degrees Kelvin or ninety three hundred Kelvins is mm-hmm. quite a bit towards blue. What we use at this in this country is 6,500 degrees Kelvin, um, which, by some standards, might I guess be, looks ever so slightly reddish, but but it's a pretty neutral white. Um, and just to be totally geeky about it, I want to mention that color temperature. A lot of people talk about color temperature as being the reference that you want to shoot for, but it's not really true, is it, uh, Michael? What do you? Uh, Fill us in on on the difference between D D sixty five and sixty five hundred K. Ah, okay. Well, one of the big misconceptions is people think sixty five hundred K actually represents like one point that is correct. But what it actually is is if you can imagine a graph with a sort of an X an X and a Y, mm-hmm. that the D sixty five actually represents a line on this graph. So so when you talk about oh I'm oh, well I'm at the sixty five hundred. It's like, well, where are you on this line? Because on one part of this line, the picture is super green, and on another part of this line, the picture is purple. There's only one point on this 6500 line that is correct, and that's, that's what we call the D65 point, and that's the, that's the neutral point. So if you just say 65, it's like, well, how many points are there on a line? <laughs> An infinite it, number, actually. <laughs> they're all wrong except for one point. And we call that point D65. That's right. Now, uh, and that's for color, though. Uh, Greg, isn't, doesn't black and white use a different white point? We could say equal energy white, white point, uh, E55, um, a little bit more reddish. Uh, and that basically shows off the, uh, the, the arc lamps of the old uh, projectors. that They had a little bit of a reddish glow to it. Um, so you could say black and white's a little, little bit more red, uh, E55, um, and then... A D65, a little less red, or a little more towards blue, or neutral for, for the canvas for black and, or for color. And that's the point that I want to make sure everyone understands. Uh, when I took the THX course, which you guys taught, uh, you made a very, very good statement that I've remembered ever since then, which has now been a, two or three years ago, which is that the gray scale, or the color of gray, or the color of gray from white to black, is like the canvas that a painter uses. And whatever colors you put on it are biased 
by whatever color the canvas is. And so it, it's a lesson, one of the most important lessons I took away from, from that class. We'll let Greg take care of that because he's the canvas painting man. We had trouble with <laughs> So Greg, Greg uh, expand on that a little bit if you would. Um, it, it's just like television is, is just like a, a painting. Um, television, it, color television is, is based on historical black and white television where it, there, there's a black and white canvas and then color is, uh, is added on top of the canvas. Um, if the canvas is a neutral, if the canvas has a, has, has a pink or, or a green or whatever hue to it, that, that, that the color of the canvas will come through in the paint and it will affect the colors. So, you, yeah. so in television, we have to have neutral gray uh, canvas before we can add the paint on top of the canvas. We, we really, refer to, sorry. Go, go right ahead, please. And then we, we refer to the, um, when you talk to actually about the signals, we refer to the, the black and white of the canvas as, as a luminance signal. They refer to the color as the chroma, chrominance, chrominance signal, or or shorten it. We'd often shorten to luma and chroma. All right, Y and C. Right. Um, now, what about the color points? We've talked now a little bit about the white point or the gray point, uh, which is specified in this country as D sixty five, and interestingly, in Singapore, did you say it was D ninety three? Right. Well, not D, um, I don't, I'm not sure if it was D93, but it'd be 9300 generic. 9300, which, which again, very, we know very is... Very, blue uh, white point. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about the color points, the red, green, and blue points? Are those different uh, from one region to another? Greg? Uh, if it's blue, gray, the, it's always... The primary RGB is the same. I'm sorry, the primary RGB... Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> hey, you're right. The, uh, the the primaries are, are the same. The, the secondaries are always based on the location of the uh, of the white balance point. So the secondary locations would be would be skewed towards whatever color the canvas is. So in the case of Japan, uh, the, the secondaries would all be skewed to add have extra blue added. Mm. And we should point out again, or we should define that the primaries are red, green, and blue. The secondaries are called yellow, magenta, and cyan, which are located sort of between those uh, primary colors. Um, exactly. Now, yeah, so clearly the importance of calibration, of video calibration, grayscale calibration, is to get that canvas correct. But I've often been asked by consumers, how, it, how important is it to do if you, for example, get your basic picture controls correct, uh, your brightness and contrast, color and tint, which are available um, in every TV these days, uh, Michael, what do you? How do you respond to that question? Well, there's there seems to be uh, sort of a general consensus amongst sort of industry and calibration um, professionals that if a person actually goes about and sets. There, the, the five primary user controls correctly, again, the brightness, the contrast, the color and the tint, and their sharpness control correctly. And that's the big if. But, but if they do that correctly, they have actually achieved in the order of 70%, 60 to 70% of all the improvements they would ever expect to achieve out of the TV set. So just setting user controls correctly, that, that's actually the biggest step. 
instrumentation comes in uh, when we want to do the grayscale and the, and the color triangle stuff. But this is the law of diminishing returns. Right. Greg, what do, you, uh, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I'm sure people must ask you the same question. Why do I need to hire you? You're going to cost me hundreds of dollars. Why can't I just do this? Well, it's the carpenter nail on the head. It's you know you pay the carpenter because he knows which uh, which nail to hit on the head. And uh, <laughs> there's so many controls on these sets, even just color intent. Then you start to add all the other adjustments that are available with all the with all the new digital technologies. You know, some sets have 50, 70, or 100 adjustments that you could be tweaking with it to get accurate uh, to get accurate uh, colors. Right. Here, let me let me take a shot at that one for fun. Sure, go for it. Um, I, I like to describe this as, as, as Scott, as, as you mentioned, well, why bring us in? Well, think of it like this. I come in, I'm going to help you with your math problem, and I come in with a bucket of numbers, and I just dump those numbers in front of you, and one of those numbers in front of you is actually the correct number, and I start walking out. And then you say, <laughs> hey, I'm supposed to help you with your math problem. I said, I have. I've given you the correct answer. It's in front of you. Problem is, you don't know which answer, which one of those numbers is actually the right number. <laughs> so, so yes, the TV could be correct, but, but there are so many different settings in the TV set. If you don't know what the right answer is, even if the right answer is sitting in front of you, it doesn't help you at all. Right. So, so therein lies the value, I think, of hiring a calibrator if what you want is the absolute best that any display can do. Wouldn't Come you on. agree? Absolutely, yes. Uh, however, uh, also as part of the, the, the entire calibration uh, process, and, and definitely as, as we push it on, on the THX end, and, and the whole concept here is you cannot give a client simply, here's the correct answer, and, but if they don't understand why it's correct, it doesn't mean anything to them. So when we calibrate their TV set, we're also explaining every single control that we use along the way, and we show them why this is the correct answer versus what an incorrect answer is. So you get the full buy-in and the full education process, and at the end of it, they understand. They not only have the correct answer, but they understand all the questions. They have the understanding of why it is the best answer. But Greg, wouldn't you say that uh, even if you go in and do as Michael suggests and it, it, educate them about the right answer and how all these different controls work, um, isn't it still a little dangerous to let the user then to to, th to think that the user might then go in and mess around with the controls that you've set up so carefully? Well, I guess that there's always that potential, but hopefully, when you're when you're educating the client and and you show them why the why the brightness is set the way it is, why the gamma response the way it is. I mean, they're going to be happy with it as as it is. Um, now, one part when, when we do do a calibration is we write down all the values and we give those values to the client. So if there ever is a reset on the TV set or something like that, um, or something happens to the to the settings, they can always be placed back to the calibrated settings. So now that that's also the, a big value in what are called the ISF day and night modes. Oh, totally. Uh, is that right, Michael? Um, absolutely, although um, Greg was actually seen in China yelling at a person for using those letters. 
it's Why in, is that? In, in, in the class. But we, so we shall just refer to them as day and night modes. Yes. Um, uh, uh, oh, of course, of course, because you were teaching for THX. And uh, yeah, uh-huh, okay. Never, yeah, right. Okay. Shall not be named. <laughs> the, other, the other place that shall not be named. All right, fine. So the day and night modes, uh, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, actually lock the controls. And you can set them, you can set the controls for daytime viewing when there's some ambient light and for nighttime viewing when there's no ambient light. And then they, the, these settings can be locked so that um, the user can't go in or the kids can't go in and muck around with them. Exactly. I, I just uh, worked on an LG Plasma uh, just a couple hours ago that had uh, the, the, the THX Cinema mode and then THX uh, Brightroom mode, which are both, both uh, calibratable. So yeah, I tweaked out both of them. But after I'm done, they're, they're locked out from the client, so he can't, uh, he can't change the settings. Mm-hmm. Um, that re- that reminds me of a of a good question. Um, THX mode. There, there are now TVs. THX is known for a long time for for certifying audio products, and in the last few years, they've also now started to certify video products, displays, mostly flat panels. Um, and there is a THX mode in these flat panels where you go into the menu and you pick the THX mode, and it's supposed to be correct. But uh, I've found in my reviews that. In some cases, the THX mode is pretty close, and in other cases, it's uh, maybe not so close. Michael, how, how can we resolve this issue? If THX mode is supposed to be correct, why is there so much variability? The variability comes in because we're trying to make TV sets that hit a certain price point, and if you want sort of the consistency from unit to unit, instead of $1,000 TVs, we're now talking $5,000 TVs and, and more. Um, so, so, so given that reality of, of the market, uh, when it comes to THX certification of, of a TV set, a THX mode in the TV set, uh, you know, like it or not, THX does give them sort of a, a, a plus or minus on this is what the correct answer is. But because we're making consumer-grade products, we realize that on an assembly line, sometimes you have some variance. And, and hopefully everything falls within that variance. But, but of course... Because there is variance, and since THX can never uh, guarantee, they don't know what kind of TV or uh, Blu-ray player or whatever you're going to be, uh, or what kind of signal you're going to be plugging it, plugging into the TV. So the THX mode in TVs, think of it as it represents a best guess. But th- th- because of the way the mode is designed, that if for those who have the knowledge, you can tweak it just a bit further, and you can almost be guaranteed that you can get it as good as it's going to get. And you don't have to work that hard to get there. Mm-hmm. And Greg, as you said, uh, sometimes the THX mode is calibratable, that is adjustable, uh, but sometimes it's not. Uh, is, I guess that's the manufacturer's decision, isn't it? Right. I, that, that's, where, that's where THX is going as well, that we're going to be a daytime uh, re- reference mode and, and uh, THX Brightroom modes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be tweaked, tweaked by the technician as well. Uh, Craven M in the chat room asks, what's the difference between THX and that other company? <laughs> I'll say it, ISF. Uh, are there differences? Uh, how are the THX and ISF calibrators different, or are they? Greg, um, you well, go first. Yeah, Greg, go ahead first. We were actually the, the first organization that came up with a, with a three-day training program for our technicians, and it's really focused on, on hands-on and 
one of the models of the class is actually is doing is is doing good work first, um, and and how to how to continuously and consistently uh, do a hundred percent effort, even even if you don't have the advanced controls available, that you do the best work best that you can with what you're given, um, and that and that's kind of how that's how the whole class is. It's 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 all a hands-on experience and uh, and learning and, and and just tweaking one display at a time, and when you're done done the class, being able to uh, to actually do a calibration by the time you finish the class to actually go into a home or go into a theater and, and do a paying, uh, a paying job by the time you finish. Now, I have to say, uh, Michael, that uh, one of the things that impressed me, and I don't mean for this to be an ad for THX calibration. This is, that's not my point here. But I have seen both the THX and the ISF calibration courses. And one of the things that impressed me about the THX course is that before you can get your certification, you have to submit... 10 calibrations. You do two in the class during the three days of video one and two. Um, but then you have to do eight more on your own and submit them before you'll actually get your THX certification. Whereas ISF, I think, only requires one or two. That Well, uh, definitely that, that's one of the, the, the places where, where th things differ because uh, doing a little uh, step backwards on a historical sense, uh, Greg and I um, have actually been ISF instructors many years ago. So th think of it as we, we took our experience from, from that program and we, we built upon it uh, looking at uh, how we as calibrators would, would want to, sort of what, what elements would we want to add into a program our, ourselves. And the, the, the idea of the 10 calibrations aside from, yes, it's, it's, it's not so much for THX's benefit, but it's definitely for the student's benefit because this is about practice, practice, practice. Yes. And yes. you cannot go ahead and represent yourself as a THX calibrator. Let's just say if you actually decide, I just want the letters on my, uh, my, uh, my shingle, yeah. on my store. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm not going to buy any equipment because that's actually a monetary investment. And, and guess what? Because I'm a smooth talker, I'm going to convince all my clients that you don't need any equipment, that THX taught me everything I needed to know. Well, guess what? With those 10 calibrations, you can't do that. You actually have to buy equipment before you get certified. So, so there's a, it, it's a verification process, and, and it makes sure that no one sort of sneaks in under the radar and can mi misrepresent what we're actually about. We want people to do good work, but since you have to, the only way to do good work is you have to buy the equipment. And you have to properly maintain it, and there's that requirement, and and yes. listen, and, and you can't sneak that by anybody. Well, that's a great point, and uh, it brings up the question of equipment, which I want to get to in just a moment. But if you'll hang on for a second, I would like to take this opportunity to thank one of our sponsors for this episode of Home Theater Geeks, uh, Netflix. Netflix, of course, as we all know, delivers movies directly to your home, and it saves you time, money, and a ton of hassle. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies uh, stream directly to your PC or Mac or stream to your TV uh, via Netflix-ready uh, apps, um, Blu-ray players, game boxes, uh, Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii. Uh, you can get it just about any way you want. And you can watch as many movies and TV shows as you want anytime you want. There are never any late fees, no due dates. Um, <clears throat> So be sure to sign up for your free trial at netflix.com slash twit. And we thank Netflix for their support of the Twit Network. 
Um, so I have a bunch more questions, but uh, first I'll, I'll pass along one from the chat room, which is uh, from uh, Reverb Mike. Reverb Mike in the chat room asks, what's the difference between uh, plasma and LCD in terms of calibration? Is there, is there a difference? Well, they, 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 they all calibrate the, the same way now. Um, you know, LCD historically has not had a good black level, which is, is not the case anymore with the new uh, local, um, the, the regionally, uh, regionally lit LED units. Lo- um, local dimming, we call it, typically. The, the, what you are going to find on most LCD panels is they take a hit on the black levels and the contrast ratios uh, when you go off axis. Um, so, you know, even 5, 10, 15 degrees off, off perpendicular center, uh, you're not having as good a contrast ratio. And that, that's come, that, that becomes an issue when you want to have uh, more than one person enjoying the same content. If you have two or three people on the same couch, they're going to be seeing different images, uh, an issue you don't have with plasma television. Right. But in terms of calibrating them, Michael, uh, there's, there's not that much difference between them, right? It's pretty much exactly the same. Um, now, sorry, go right ahead. Oh, although, can I backstep just a moment? Uh, of course, uh, sure. The, I, I wanted to add just one more item uh, when uh, when Mr. Craven asked about the difference between ISF and us. Uh, one of, in addition to uh, when when we teach the class in terms of how the THX program works, is yes, there's a lot more hands-on. Uh, we want the students to understand, uh, you know, have a, m- a much better grasp of the mechanics of the calibration. But in addition to that. Uh, we definitely we we teach the people the concept that you cannot just go into a person's home and just calibrate their TV and say you're really good at it. So you calibrate the TV in half an hour and then you give the guy a bill for four hundred bucks and you say pay me and then you wonder why the guy's mad. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so, yeah. so so in our program, you, you teach the calibrators that. When you actually calibrate the TV, that's actually going to be the easiest part of the entire process. How, however, what do you do the rest of the time? Because you better not be walking out of there in half an hour or one hour. I don't care how good of a job you've done to the TV set, because $400 one hour, you can just guarantee that the client is not going to be happy. That's where it, the, the whole idea here is you, you don't just teach people how to calibrate the mechanics of calibrating a TV set, but you teach them this is how the business of calibration is actually run that you have to do a whole bunch of other things for the client to stretch out the whole time frame of the calibration process. And that's where the whole education stuff come in, comes in. This is not just about you calibrate the TV and where's my money. Because you do that, you will get no word of mouth or pretty much bad word of mouth, regardless of how good of a physical you know, job you actually did on the guy's TV set. He will not be happy. And, this, but- and the calibrators learn that in our class. Mm-hmm. And this isn't, though, just a matter of, of padding your time to make the fee seem reasonable. You actually are adding value to the process that you are selling to the client by, in fact, educating them on what they need to know, right? Absolutely, because our, our little motto here is educated clients actually talk to their friends in an intelligent manner about what you did. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the typical response for, for a client who wasn't educated in the calibration process, after you give him the calibrated picture, the typical response is, the picture's too dark. Well, guess what? 
when he says the picture's too dark to a bunch of his friends, I don't think anybody's getting in line to get their TV calibrated. But mind you, when you win them over with the education and they understand what the process is, they become your advocates. They talk to their friends and you educate their friends and you literally build a network based on word of mouth. No education, no word of mouth. Right, of course. Um, <clears throat> let's see, uh, Untamed Furby, no, I'm sorry, Lawn Dog in the chat room asks, what, is the cal- what does the factory do for calibration on a typical TV before it goes out the door? I mean, do you, is there any kind of uh, standardized calibration procedure that manufacturers do before, they, before it leaves their factory? Uh, Greg, what do you think? Well, absolutely. I mean, that, that's part of the THX mode criteria is that the set's calibrated, but it, it's what's a reasonable calibration and, and what do you reasonably want to pay for that calibration on the retail price of a TV set? Mm. And, you know, that, that's, that's, that's always the trade-off. Um, so, you know, like Panasonic's, the Panasonic THX sets, they, they hit black level consistently. Uh, they hit the, the, the primary colors very well consistently, but grayscale, you know, is skewed off a little bit because there can be so much unit by unit variance. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you want to spend more than you know thirty, forty seconds on assembly line calibrating, you're looking at you know increasing the price substantially. And yeah. the consumer want to pay for that. By the way, and that reminds me of another um, issue with THX mode or a THX certified set. The THX can't possibly predict, and that is the environment in which the TV is going to find itself. You know, they don't know what kind of room you're going to put that TV in, how much ambient light there is there, how, what, what the reflective properties of the walls and ceiling are. I mean, that's another big issue, isn't it, that you have to take into account when you go into somebody's house and calibrate their TV. Totally. Uh, Sorry, I've, I've got to be more of a traffic cop here. I apologize. Michael, why don't you go ahead? Well, absolutely. It's the, the, the THX mode on, on the TV set is it's a best guess. However, it, it's a best guess based on what we call the it's set up based on what we call the, the known reference room or the THX environment. And I'm always, always asking people, what do you think this this THX reference room that the THX mode is supposed to work best in? And the THX refer, reference room is guess what? It's a black room with carpet. It's black carpet. It reflects no light. And how many people actually have that kind of a room? Well, pretty much do, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, in, in my house, well, certainly we have that here at the, at the studio. Uh, and at my house, I have that too. Um, but, uh, you know, I made a deal with my wife that uh, I could have that in my theater if she could decorate the rest of the house. And I said, sure. <laughs> right. So, so, so when you go into the client's home and if you're playing with that specific THX mode in the TV set, you are customizing that mode to the environment, yes. to, to the lighting in their room, and not only that, but to the, to the DVD player, uh, to whatever, all the equipment that they're using, because uh, different DVD players, Blu-ray players do not function the same, because if they did, $26 Walmart players would be just as good as $500 players, and strangely enough, they're not. Why is that? But it's all digital. Ah, bits is bits, eh? Yes. Um, uh, Greg, uh, beat, that brings up a question, uh, Greg, that Beatmaster in the chat room asks. How much do things change between Blu-ray and DVD? Uh, and even what, what can we expect from 4K? Will there be uh, any differences there? Uh, Michael just said that uh, you know, even from one DVD player to another, there might be some differences. Are there predictable differences between DVD and Blu-ray? 
Um, well, DVD is is a different color space, um, so, so there is that big difference right off the bat between that and Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. As you as you go a bit bit rates, there shouldn't be changes. Um, you can go into uh, compression algorithms and compression differences that can di- make a difference in in banding or lack of banding. Uh, 4K, uh, I would, you know, being a higher resolution, there should be less banding as well. I, I think as we go forward, uh, if you look into the crystal bar ball for the future. You're going to see bigger color gamuts and uh, and 12-bit processing versus 8-bit processing, which is going to be less banding and, and more shadow detail and that that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, what, sorry, yeah. Michael, you had something to add there. Yeah. A let, let's think of it this way: a four million pixel 4K 50-inch plasma TV or or LCD TV set. Um, if a person sits at typical distance say you're 8 to 10 feet away from the TV set for a 50-inch TV set, uh-huh. there's no visible difference between a 4K and our Blu-ray at effectively 2K. Right. You, you, it's, the pixels are too small. It makes no difference. You get nothing on the extra resolution thing unless you're, you're watching that TV at 2 feet away. <laughs> <laughs> Although that does bring up another question, Michael, uh, that I've always had, which is... Um, People make the same argument between 1080p and 720p, and they say that at a certain screen size, at a certain distance away, you can't tell the difference between them. And in terms of the pixel resolution or or being able to resolve individual pixels, I would agree. But what about scaling artifacts? Most HD content is either 1080p from Blu-ray or 1080i from broadcast. And if Mm -hmm. you scale that to 720, isn't there the potential to see visible scaling artifacts even at a normal distance from a normal-sized TV, quote-unquote? And, and the answer is absolutely. Uh, within, within our class structure, we actually have this fun little thing where we, we show people resolution in the class, and, and, the, and then you get a person who stands, I don't know, eight feet back from a 50-inch TV set, and then he stands 10 feet back, and we ask them, can you actually see this 1080p resolution? And their answer is no, they can't see it. However, then we turn, then we process that signal and effectively turn it into a 720p signal. So we down-res it, mm-hmm. and suddenly you see these massive distortion bars in the picture, and the person can see it halfway across the room. Right. And that so shows good. up. Yeah, yeah, so, so you'll see it. And, and you'll see it in uh, people's sweaters that have lots of detail. You're going to see this pumping or the, 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 the clothes seem to be glowing or, or there's a rainbow moving around in the clothes. And you say, well, what is that? And that's, is that supposed to be there? It's a scaling artifact. So, uh, so I, this is the reason why I generally recommend that people buy 1080p TVs, even if they're relatively small. You know, even if they're 42 or 46 inch. A lot of people say, oh, you can't tell the difference between that and 720p. Well, you can if, you do, if you're doing any scaling. You, it's a potential anyway. Did you know that uh, most, uh, pretty much every TV set, every 1080p TV set that comes out of the box is actually delivering all the consumers effectively 720p resolution? No, how's that? Because every TV set comes out of the box overscanning the picture. They, they chop off about two, three percent of the picture along the edge. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. So, so the picture is actually zoomed, and when you zoom a picture, you're processing it, and that processing effectively kills half the resolution. I didn't realize it killed that much, but uh, but that you make an excellent a, point. It, it effectively kills a million. 
million pixels. Wow, wow. But he notices. Uh, How about that? <laughs> well, that's even worse. I mean, a lot of people don't notice when it comes out of the box, it's in dynamic or vivid mode, you know, where it's just you need to wear shades to watch the TV. Um, so, yeah, I, this is certainly my goal is to educate consumers about what a good picture really looks like and how it can be more comfortable to watch. You can see more uh, if you just take a little bit of time and set the basic user controls. And then if you want to go that extra 20, 30 percent to get it as good as it possibly can be, then you either hire a calibrator or you take one of these courses and learn to do it yourself, Uh, which I want to get uh, back to in a moment. Uh, Web 911 has been asking a question in the chat room which is, uh, do you have to calibrate uh, a, a computer monitor to get HDTV? Uh, he's talking about an HP in particular, but uh, th- it's a valid question. Uh, is calibrating computer monitors different than calibrating TVs? Uh, Greg, what do you think? Uh, th- we should follow the same standard. Um, computer monitors digitally go from 0 to 255. Uh, television is 16 to 235 uh, plus headroom. So there's a little bit of a difference, but when you take that black level difference into account, the methodology and the white balance point and and the the color space is the same. Um, Some computer monitors you could look at, well, if you're doing Adobe color space, it's a different uh, size of color gamut than than television is. So there are some variances. Uh, The principle holds true regardless. Yeah. Uh, uh, Greg, Craven M in the chat room asks, where can I get information about hiring a THX calibrator? Great question, huh? <laughs> we, can, we, can go directly to the, we can go directly to the THX website. Um, in the bottom, you can, you can search under technicians and, and your, your zip code. Um, then you'd look for a video, certified video professional. We also have thxvideotech.com is, is more of a technical site. Uh, it's it's a closed technical support site, but we have the open side of it uh, has uh, information on the classes and uh, and how to find a calibrator. Good, good, uh, Michael. I wanted to get back a little bit earlier. Uh, you were talking about instrumentation uh, and and how people really need to if if they want to be a calibrator, a full calibrator, they need to invest in some instrumentation. And uh, you and I have been actually emailing about this in response to a reader question that I got some time ago. Um, and uh, you really do have to spend some money on, on instrumentation, don't you? I mean, uh, basically what you need is a colorimeter, which is a device that senses what color is, uh, is being produced by a display. Um, why don't you tell us about, give us a basic overview of the two types of, of colorimeters that people can buy. All right. Okay. Uh, two types of uh, colorimeters or uh, uh, calibration devices that, that you might find on the market. Uh, the first kind is a well, it's colorimeter. Think of it as a, it, these things look like, like the hockey pucks, these, these round things. And they're, they're called like tri-stimulus devices. And, and think of these devices as they, they have these filters built into them, a red filter, a green filter, and a blue filter. And the nice thing about these devices is that they have a very good a low light sensitivity, but their downside is precisely those same red, green, and blue filters because when they put them in, they assumed a certain type of red, green, and blue. However, if you're using that same device on a TV set that has a much larger color triangle 
where the red, the, the green, and the blue are very different than what is actually in the probe. The probe doesn't really know what to deal, how to deal with that. And mm -hmm. the probe will give you an answer. Unfortunately, the answers are all wrong. But <laughs> probe doesn't know that. And, and that's the problem with the, with the uh, colorimeters, the, the tri-stimulus, the, the inexpensive stuff. The, on the more expensive end, we have the devices called uh, spectrometers. Um, they're actually not that super expensive because on an entry level thing, you can get entry level at $400 and they go from $400 and up. Of course, up, 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 like to forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. Right. But <laughs> those devices don't actually have like color filters in them. They actually look at the entire color spectrum. And of course, so, so they don't get fooled when you put them up against a, a, a new type of TV set that's giving you a much bigger color triangle. It doesn't get fooled by stuff like that. Uh, the, the only difference, of course, uh, well, they're, they're slower, but the differences between the, the inexpensive uh, spectrometers versus the more expensive ones is you have your color spectrum, but the inexpensive stuff, they, they only sample, they, they don't sample nearly as many points. So, so it's, it's like a, a rougher curve, uh, a more bumpy curve versus a, a smoother line when you get into the much more expensive stuff. The right. thing you see behind me, that's a spectrometer, and that's in that $12,000 range. Right, right, exactly. We use that here at uh, a home theater and Ultimate AV. Uh, we use the Konica Minolta CS200, mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty nice meter at uh, probably not much over 10 grand, 12 or 13 maybe. Uh, photo research uh, can be in the 15 and up range. Uh, the Minolta CS2000 is like in the $30,000 range or so. Um, so, one, yeah. One more thing to that, uh, Scott. Yeah, please. Uh, uh, one, one of the biggest selling points for the, for the colorimeters, the, the, the tri-stimulus devices, has been uh, people always tell that they have good low-light sensitivity and they're fast and they're fast. Although within our own class structure, we're always asking the students, uh, fast versus accurate. Uh, yeah, it's fast, but if it gives me wrong answers, is that good? <laughs> no, I'd say not. No, yes. Yeah, so, 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 so when it comes down to... Uh, Yes, you can actually get some very good, those uh, tri-stimulus devices, and they can sell up to like $6,000. But the problem is they're fast, but they still have the same filter issue, which is they're assuming a certain red, green, and blue. So in terms of accuracy, even if you had a $6,000 fast device, you still have to double-check it with a $1,000 spectrometer. Sure, it's slower, but it's more accurate. Now, Greg... Uh, it you can get around this filter problem that uh, Michael was just talking about uh, with uh, what are called lookup tables or um, offsets to the red, green, and blue that are inherent in the filters, can't you? you can, to, to create an offset, you still need to have a spectroradiometer to create that offset. So um, you, have, you have to know the target of where you're going, is what you're saying, right, in order to be able to create the offset and get accurate results. A manufacturer can build an offset into a tri-stimulus device, but the problem with that is that that's only based on that on that on that one reference uh, display that they're working on to begin with. Then you go to a second reference, a, a different reference, a difference display, trying to use those same offsets. They don't always work, and and sometimes they, they perform very poorly in the, in that secondary situation. Right, and uh, you mentioned earlier, Greg, about LED. Uh, backlit LCDs, which do give you a much better black level, 
but they also have different a different color gamut, a different set of red, green, and blue, which causes problems for these tristimulus meters, right? Right. They can be a very narrow uh, spectrum of uh, of color or light coming out of that. That that might not very be be very readable to a to a tristimulus device at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael uh, Webb. 8311 in the chat room asks, are there any good online resources for the DIY or for those of us who can't afford the services of a pro? I, I always have a hard time with this question because if you're not going to hire a pro, you really need to know what you're doing in order to do a grayscale calibration. Isn't that right, Michael? That's, that's pretty much it. Okay, let's say you're going to do, you're going let, to, let, let's look at the real value if you're going to do it yourself. Um, because if you do it yourself, you're still going to need a disc, so go get yourself a disc. Um, you're going to need a meter, so you're going to buy one of those entry-level stuff, and you're not going to buy them for 20 bucks. They're, they're, they're still, you're still spending 100 to $200 or something on an entry-level meter, and of course you cross your fingers and you hope that things going to work right. And it's going to be accurate for that, your display, yeah. That, that's right. And, and in addition to that, so, so you're already in it for, say, 200 bucks. Well, guess what? Now you need a program to actually run that meter. And some software can, on a computer. Yeah, software. You, and you, that, that stuff doesn't. There is a free one that, that, that's out there, but there are the enthusiast stuff. You can get it. It's not that expensive, but that's two hundred bucks there as well to to run your hardware. So okay, now you're in four hundred bucks, three hundred, four hundred dollars, and a professional calibration will typically run you three hundred to four hundred dollars. And guess, and the thing here is, if you're going to do it yourself, now you also have to invest a heck of a lot more time into doing this thing. Learning how to do all this stuff yourself and hoping and crossing your fingers that you actually understood the stuff you're reading about and you're going to do it right. And it's like I've had many clients who, who tell me up front that they've done They've done the do-it-yourself themselves, or mm-hmm. they they use the test disc. And remember, everybody tells me they did it correctly. Everybody says they did it correctly. Of and, course. And, and in half of all cases, every half of them did it wrong. Except everybody told me they did it right. It's like everybody tells me they're a good driver. We have part- <laughs> Someone's lying. Who's lying? Right. Right. Exactly. Right. The the real answer, I think, to the question is. Unless you take the time, unless you invest in the equipment and the software, and you take the time to really study and learn, and pro- and hopefully maybe even take the THX or other courses, uh, which are going to cost you a heck of a lot more than a pro is to come in and just do it. Um, that that it's really not necessarily a well recommended uh, approach. Let me add one more thing into here, uh, uh, Scott. Sure. Uh, there are there are home theater uh, websites out there like. You know, where uh, enthusiasts can go and uh, and actually get help from other enthusiasts and a lot of professional calibrators, including Greg and myself. We also hang out there and we help people out. And you give people we, we don't charge people for that. It's all free advice, and you help them out, and and you try to do the best you can. <laughs> Problem is when you're uh, as a professional, sometimes when you're giving a person helpful advice, well, they they don't listen to you. Because they think you have some ulterior motives, so they take the advice of someone with less experience. Mm, you know, interesting. You don't trust people with more experience because because they are conflicted. They have conflict of interest. So you trust the people who have no experience to give you the better answers. 
This is a pro- this is right there as a conundrum, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Greg Reverb Mike in the chat room asks if a TV comes out of the box zoomed with overscan, as I think Michael was talking about. How do you get it unzoomed? How do you get back that resolution that you've lost with uh, with the overscan out of the box? You have to you have to find the one to one pixel mode or the pixel matching mode. That'll get you down to zero percent overscan and, and get the pixels aligned, you know, at 1080p. Um, on, on, a, on a quick note, if you get a THX certified display in THX mode, it is in one-to-one pixel mode with uh, with no overscan. That's part of the criteria for THX. However, you know, most people aren't in THX mode when they when they open the box up and you know plug it in. They're in a they're still in a vivid mode or a sports mode or some kind of a demo mode that is going to be overscanning and giving giving a bright you know, a bright, right. sharp image to, to, you know, to sell a TV set, not, not, right. not to, cre- to create a, a reproduce an accurate image. Right, exactly. And this uh, overscanning typically is in, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a parameter or control called picture size or aspect ratio. And there'll be 16 by 9, 4 by 3, zoom 1, zoom 2, wide 1, wide 2. And hopefully there's a setting called uh, just or screen just, fit screen fit hd size two dot by dot dot by dot is another one yeah exactly full pixel uh, everybody not necessarily not 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 necessarily 16 by 9 yeah no exactly um, right that's the point i wanted to make yeah go ahead so yes yeah, so a lot of people think oh, i'm in 16 by 9 mode i'm, I'm in the right aspect ratio but you know, you're in the correct aspect ratio, but it's zoomed in, and you're not doing the one-to-one pixel mapping, so you're having a lot of processing going on and creating a lot of artifact that should be in the image. Exactly right. Um, well, I've got a couple other questions for you, but before I get to that, I do want to thank our other sponsor for this episode, Squarespace.com, uh, with an easy-to-use user interface for creating and managing a website or blog. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. Hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize the designs to fit your needs. In fact, there's even an iPhone and an iPad app for updating your blog on the go. Online resources and a special support team uh, help give you um, 24 help, 24-hour help, seven days a week. The all-inclusive service includes um, several modules to build your website: blog module, form builder, Flickr photo display, a Twitter widget, even social media buttons. We all know how important those are today, don't, don't we? Um, uh, so uh, you can use Squarespace for all your website needs. Build it, host it, update it anytime. For a free trial, go to squarespace.com and sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and build your website. Then if you decide to purchase, use the offer code HTG7 and get 10% off for six months. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code HTG7. Um, so getting back to Greg Lowen and Michael Chen, we've had a great discussion here about calibration and TVs and accuracy and so on and so forth. Um, there's one aspect of calibration that I just wanted to touch on, which is the color management system, or CMS. And in fact, here's a question I have for you. <laughs> I've tried adjusting this, the color management system, which basically, just for everybody to understand, lets you adjust where those color points are, the red, the green, the blue, the yellow, cyan, and magenta, 
where they are and whether or not they're in the right place or not. Um, and some TVs give you an incomplete set of controls to do that, and some TVs give you a complete res- uh, set of controls. Uh, and even with a complete set of controls, though, I've had this experience, and I'd love for you to uh, respond to it, uh, which is I set the CMS so that the, that the uh, color points measure correctly, but then I go and I look at real-world content, and it looks terrible. It just looks awful. Greg, what, what's going on there? Well, when you talk about color management, the color green, for example, has an intensity control and it has a, a phase control to, for the shades of green towards yellow or towards cyan. Then, then there's a luminance control for green. So each of each of the three primary colors and the three secondary colors should have three controls or 18 controls total. Um, you can nail, like you said, you, you can nail the, the color palette at a certain intensity of color to be 100% correct. But the problem is, as you go up and down those intensities of color, those 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 same numbers might not be linear. So you can have a you can have a very accurate green at a very bright shade of green, but when you go to a very dull shade of green, the the color balance is is, is extremely skewed, and colors won't look anywhere close to correct in real content. Ah, okay. So the as the you measure it at one set of values, and then as you display different colors of green, say or red or blue or anything else. Uh, the response of the TV is not linear, and what you get is lousy looking, lousy looking uh, color. Michael, have you had run into the same problem? Uh, we, we've run into the same problem, and and I guess uh, it's one of the things that that you're always reminding students, which is uh, one thing. There's there's one thing which is I can give a person a pretty graph. It looks wonderful. This this triangle hits specification. It's wonderful. The graph looks wonderful, except you have an awful-looking picture. Why? Because the controls don't actually work right in the TV set. But mm. you have a pretty graph, and you ask the client, what do you want, a pretty graph or a good picture? <laughs> We're not in this thing for pretty graphs. Yeah, a pretty graph might look nice, but the bottom line is we watch pictures, and I don't care what a graph looks like. We were in this to watch pictures, and people had better look right, and since you don't ever know going in that whether a system, a color management system, works right or not, mm-hmm. you just have to default to real-life material because there's no guarantee that it works right. Uh, Magpie Oops. in the chat room asks a, a great question here, which leads into something I wanted to ask about. Uh, what is a suitable video test pattern generator for uh, video calibration? Is a separate, uh, Well, let me just ask that. And, and that leads to the or relates to the question I wanted to ask, which is you can calibrate uh, one of the inputs for a TV for a Blu-ray player or a DVD player just fine because you can get a disc that has the right patterns on it and you put it on, you put the disc in the player and you do your calibration. How do you calibrate for broadcast content, streaming, um, over-the-air, cable, satellite? How do you go about doing that, Greg? Well, Short answer is you can't. You have to hope that the broadcaster is giving you an accurate signal to begin with. And isn't that um, a vain hope? <laughs> <laughs> well, some broadcasters, I think, do it much better than others. I, like HDNet is, a, is an example of a channel uh, that does an extremely good job of it. Um, HD Movies, another channel. Uh, Showtime, uh, Showtime HBO do a great job. Um, some channels do a not-so-great job. So 
kind of have to you know look at the source and, and see what's going on. I mean, if the broadcaster is giving you high definition content, they're saying they're giving you high definition content when it's really four by three upconvert that's stretched to fill the screen, or four by three content where they even have you know the four by the standard definition uh, jail bars on the side. You know, it's probably not going to be a quality image. So that's really though. Getting back to Magpie's question, that may be where uh, a video test pattern generator might come in handy, right? Totally. I mean, you have to you have to set the display for reference and realize that sometimes you don't have reference coming to the display. Um, you know, reference is always the signal generator. It, it's never a Blu-ray player as a, as a starting point. Um, for the example, you know, if you just use a signal generator or use a sorry a Blu-ray player. You don't know if that Blu-ray player is set up correctly. I mean, it, it, the black level could be wrong, or it could be you know, they could have the, the there could be a gamma preset on it or whatever that, that's giving you an inaccurate image that you think is accurate because you're using it using it with the test patterns, but it's doing something that's that's not correct. So you always got to start off um, with with a signal generator to the display, make the display as accurate as you can, and then match your sources to match the signal generator. Very good. Michael, uh, can you it's recommend? I'm sorry, go ahead. You set it up to a signal generator, but when it comes to broadcast stuff, you still cross your fingers. Michael, do you have any recommendations of, uh, of signal generators? Uh, those tend to be pretty expensive, too. We have an Acupel uh, 3000 here, which at the time it sold, we bought it, it was something like 1300 bucks. That, that ain't cheap. Okay, signal generators. Uh, okay, there, there's sort of right now. There's like the, the the Cadillac piece that a lot of the the calibrators use. That's from Quantum Data. That's in the at starting point of about thirty six hundred dollars. Uh, if we take a step backwards into the the less expensive, uh, the the SpectraCal guys have a box for Video Forge for about twenty five hundred. And then you go another step backwards. You're at thirteen hundred. Uh, dollars now, and this is the Acupel 5000, which is uh, two years or two generations past what you have. Uh -huh. and, and on the cheap, cheap end, you can find these uh, boxes for about 700 bucks, but the problem is they have software glitches right now, and they work correctly on some TVs and not on others, and since you don't know when they're working right and when they're working wrong, they're not very reliable. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh <clears throat> Okay, well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of a fascinating hour. Uh, I've got many more questions to ask you, so uh, will you guys come back on? Anytime. Just invite us. Great. Love to come back on. Great. Great. And hopefully next time, Greg, not, not from a truck stop while you're on your way on vacation. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd be in the Atlantic time zone. Well, thank you so much, for, and thank your family for me, will you, for uh, uh, bearing with me and you as, uh, as we... Uh, had this wonderful conversation about video calibration, which uh, which I'm sure the uh, a lot of people will find very interesting. I know I did. So I want to thank uh, Greg Lowen and Michael Chen both for being guests on the show. Thank you both very thank much. You. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Scott. You bet. Uh, you can contact uh, or see what uh, Greg and Michael are both doing on lionav.com. And uh, as we mentioned during the show, you can check out thx.com as well. My online homes, of course, are ultimateavmag.com, where I have this week's poll question of how are you going to respond to the Netflix rate hike? So please go there and, uh, and check that out and vote for what you're going to do. 
Uh, I'm also on hometheater.com, and I answer reader questions on both sites. Uh, so you can send those to scott at twit.tv. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at htgeekscott. Next week, my guest is scheduled to be Gene Dolgoff, a 3D expert and one of the most requested return guests on the show. So uh, I'm sure that's going to be very interesting, and I sure hope you'll join me for that. Until then, geek out. Geek out.